Hi everyone, just a quick message before we start today's episode. The American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine recently announced a call for papers for an upcoming special issue on critical care. Critical care, an evolving area in pulmonary medicine, addresses care for patients facing life-threatening illnesses due to disease or injury. You can learn more about the journal's formatting guidelines and find a link to submit your paper by visiting atsjournals.org promo. That's atsjournals.org promo. Thanks and enjoy this week's episode of Out of the Blue. This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to another episode of the Out of the Blue podcast. My name is Maur Saller, and today I am joined by Drs. Nathaniel Levington and Dr. Brian Medina, who are the authors of today's article for discussion, BEL cell gene expression in severe asthma reveals mechanisms of severe disease and influences a medication. Dr. Nathaniel Levington is an assistant professor in the Division of Pulmonary Allergy and Critical Care Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine, and Dr. Brian Medina is an assistant professor in the Division of Allergy at National Jewish Hospital. Thank you guys for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. So um, tell us a little bit about what the genesis of this project was. Uh, where did the ideas come from? So uh, this is Nate Weathington, and I'll say that Brian really took the lead on this study with gene expression analysis. Um, and it was a unique opportunity because he had done several prior studies with gene expression from the epithelial compartment using um, array data, I believe, from brushings. Um, but this was a, a long untouched database of BAL cell gene expression. Um, and he started doing uh, a really robust analysis on this as kind of the first BAL gene expression data from a rich cohort of asthmatics. Um, and I had been aware of this through our collaboration with Sally Wenzel, who's also here in Pittsburgh, um, and saw Brian present the data. Um, boy, it was a couple years before the paper was published. Um, and I got very interested in the macrophage physiology that seemed to be underlying these gene expression changes. And so, so I approached Brian about working together and uh, we, you know, were able to kind of put both of our heads into this project to come up with essentially what got published here. That's the main origin of how this study came to be. What do you think, Brian? Yeah, I agree with that. Um, it's been a, it's been a long road getting to where we actually published this paper, but um, you know, gene expression, I like to think of it as, is what's happening in the cell at the very moment that you sample it. And it's global gene expression. So it's what all this, all the uh, different proteins are being expressed at that moment. And I think uh, we started off with bronchoepithelial cells and there's been some great publications in that. And then they've used nasal gene expression of nasal brushings and then sputum gene expression. And this was the first study where we really looked at uh, BAL cells, which are washings of the lower lungs, 
which samples the lower airway. So it was a, an exciting time to be able to analyze a completely new data set because we've analyzed the upper airway epithelial cell gene expression pretty well. And, and some of the findings that have been found in the gene expression of the upper airways and the epithelial brushings is something what we call the type two gene signature. And it's these genes such as periostin and click A1 and serpent B2, they were actually identified uh, by in vitro studies in Woodruff Prescott's group. They stimulated epithelial cells with interleukin-13 and measured gene expression and saw when they stimulated them with interleukin-13, the certain genes went up. And they named that kind of the type two gene signature. And we identified that and, and we used that in this study. Um, but then we started to look at the BAL cell uh, gene expression and we started to see other signals that kind of went along with disease severity. Um, it's interesting because there were so many different factors that go into gene expression. And when we started to really get, dig deep into the data, we saw things like a person's age would make a difference in the gene expression. And this makes sense as the cells and the, uh, as they get older and you get senescence. But other things like race, um, uh, or their BMI, also seem to, to change the gene expression. Interestingly, we always just kind of sampled patients and compared gene expression from one person to another without always thinking about the cell populations and cell proportions uh, seem to matter quite a bit. Um, so that yeah, presented some of this data initially, and um, we can talk about some of the networking here in a little bit, but we use some of the networking to kind of identify biological processes that I thought were tied to severe asthma. And when I presented it to Nate, Nate kind of said, oh, this makes complete sense with what I know about um, the physiology and the biology of uh, macrophages. So, so Brian, so, so let's go into some of the details of, of the analysis that you perform. You use something called WGCNA. So sort of tell us a little bit about what that is and, and, and how using that technique led to some of the things that you found. Yeah, so, you know, when we first started to do differential gene expression analysis, we would essentially take a group of people and we take their cells and then we take another group of people, say disease versus control. And then you see what genes are up and down comparing the two populations using something very simple like a t-test. And they came up with these lists called differential gene expression lists. And essentially it was like a big soup of, um, of genes. And you'd get a big list of 300 genes that are up and down regulated and no one really knew what to do with those. And you would put those into these enrichment pathways and it would spit out, you know, two or 300 results. And you're kind of subjectively picking, picking and choosing the ones that you think are important and ones that you're not. And, and you can just tell from that whole process, it's full of uh, a lot of subjective analysis. So what weighted G weight, weighted, a gene co-expression network analysis, or WGCNA, it gets its name from co-expression. And so what that says is when you take enough patients' samples and you take them and you do a, an analysis across the samples, you'll see that certain genes are up or down together in certain samples. And so, for example, if you have tryptase gene 1 and tryptase gene 2, if patients have increased mast cells in their samples, you'll see tryptase uh, be up in samples where they have increased mast cells and down 
in samples where there's decreased mast cells. And, and tryptase are mast cell specific genes. So when you have enough samples, you can start to build what we call co-expression network analysis. And so that just says, okay, two genes are up in samples together or tend to be down in samples together. We're gonna build on this and we're gonna build relation biological networks out of this. And so you essentially, you take all your genes and you plug them into this software and what comes out are these uh, networks, which if you look at them, they're tied biologically. So for example, you'll get a, uh, you'll get a set of, of genes that are related to the X chromosome and those will all separate out into a network and they'll be strongly associated with female or down-regulated in male sex. Vice versa, Y chromosomes will do the same thing. Cell-specific chromosomes, you'll see a group of eosinophil genes will cluster together, et cetera. So it's a way to actually um, get some biological meaning of these big amorphous lists of differential gene expressions. It helps breed some biological, a lot of it is, um, in fact, um, hypothesis generating, but it does help you in a way, come up with some biology to try to differentiate um, two different uh, phenotypes. And so if you take the initial uh, uh, example that I gave you, instead of just comparing a big amorphous list of differential gene expression, if you do network analysis, you identify a network, and then you can compare one phenotype to the other to see if you have whole networks down and up. And if you looked at our epithelial gene expression, analysis. Two years ago, we identified a network um, related to ERB2 and ERB3. These are epithelial growth factor receptors. They partner together and they're important for um, epithelial cell proliferation after injury. So we found that in severe asthma patients, this network was markedly down. And then there's been other people that have reproduced the almost identical uh, network in completely different data sets. There was uh, Jones, AC Jones, and the Boscow group out of uh, Australia. They did it in sputum. And then recently, uh, Matt Altman and uh, the group out of Wisconsin, they identified the same network out of nasal epithelial cells from Washings. And so you see this networks being reproducibly created, um, kind of again, adding to the biological plausibility and the validity of, of these networks. So I, I, I initially found this network that was in the BAL data and was markedly down-regulated in asthma patients and seemed to get lower and lower as you got higher and higher severity. So you had an inverse relationship. I presented this data to Pittsburgh uh, as part of a grand rounds and I was presenting it tonight and I said, well, all of this is, looks to be cyclic AMP signaling. So things like phosphodiesterase, CREM, which is a modulator of uh, cyclic AMP signaling, all of these were down-regulated and in, they were inversely related to increasing severity. And, th and that's when I, I presented this and Nate essentially took off and ran with it. So, so Nate, tell me a little bit about what you saw on that data and, and what the pharmacologic implications are. Well, the interesting thing to me was that um, 
this network that that Brian had identified, um, which in the paper we call the Bow Camp Network. Um, it had a really strong um, correlation with the severity of asthma. And when we when we looked at it, Brian generated this beautiful heat map, <clears throat> which is Figure Seven of the paper, that shows um, macrophage gene expression uh, along the BAL camp axis at the top and that it's suppressed in all of the severe asthma groups. Um, but there are two groups, one's a T2 high and the other's a T2 low based on how the gene expression plays in the um, epithelial cells, um, which says that, you know, whether the asthmatic signature um, based on epithelial cell expression is T2 high or T2 low, um, that doesn't matter with regards to the gene expression at the level of the alveolar macrophages. More severe patients have suppression along this particular signal axis or this gene network, regardless of what the, you know, the consideration of the inflammatory uh, type might be. Um, and, and the fact that there was unity on the alveolar macrophage side, despite the diversity on the, um, on the epithelial side, was something that, that gave us a lot of pause. And we started trying to dig into that. Um, so one of the things that we looked at was the correlation of all of the different gene networks against all of the clinical traits and all of the you know, other data that we could get from these individuals and their samples. Um, and that's presented in figure two. Um, and the correlation between bowel camp and severity is very strong. Um, but other things that were very strong and striking and the thing that we really ended up honing in on was that the strongest correlation with the bowel camp gene expression network um, was actually tied to the intensity of beta agonist use. Um, and that's when we started considering um, these gene expression changes as potentially being a drug effect uh, because beta agonists uh, actually work by um, ligating the beta receptor and that receptor is a G-protein coupled receptor and G-protein coupled receptors work by either turning on or turning off signaling through cyclic AMP. In the case of beta agonists, they turn on cyclic AMP. So at first it was a little counterintuitive that patients using more beta agonists would have less expression through this cyclic AMP network. And that led me to start asking some questions at the basic level with cell lines. Um, well, how do these work? It's been described in epithelial cells and muscle cells that there's a phenomenon called tachyphylaxis where the more drug you use, the less effective it is. And that when those kinds of cells are exposed to beta agonists, then they actually become less responsive to them over time because they downregulate the receptor or they upregulate the things that modulate the receptor or they change the um, proteins that are second messengers between the receptor and the 
end signal, which in this case would be gene expression. And so, um, so I decided to test whether that was actually happening in macrophages or macrophage cell like cell lines. Um, and what we found out was that in fact it's true when we expose macrophages to um, to a beta agonist acutely, um, they upregulate cyclic AMP like crazy. Um, but if we leave the beta agonist there for a day and then re-stimulate them, that they fail to respond. And so there's a suppression of that signal transduction. And those cells then um, essentially become um, suppressive in their cyclic AMP signature. And we thought that maybe that was something that was relevant to the, uh, the physiology um, and, and could be an explanation for why we see this signal in the patient samples. Um, so we did a few more experiments showing kind of some of the nuts and bolts of the second messengers. Um, and then we looked in other cell lines and we saw that this was a little bit unique to macrophages because T cells actually don't show this kind of um, desensitization. Um, and the epithelial cells that we looked at, uh, again, in cell lines, actually don't have that robust to cyclic AMP response, um, either in the, um, in the acute or in the uh, prolonged exposure phase. Um, so that led us to think, well, gee, it sure is interesting that macrophages are responsive to beta agonists. And that's not really a consequence that we've thought about before in terms of treating disease, whether it be asthma, or COPD or any of the other um, respiratory illnesses that we as pulmonologists or allergists throw beta agonists at all the time. And, and to kind of add on to, to some of that, and we were able to, um, in the gene expression, with, with your studies, recreate the gene expression that we were seeing in the BAL cells. Um, and what's interesting um, was that everybody as part of the protocol got a beta agonist before they, they got a bronch. And so the people with the largest response of this BAL camp network and that had this large gene expression response in relation to cyclic AMP signaling were the healthy controls and the mild asthma patients that weren't using their beta agonist. So, a large of what we were considering down-regulated and severe asthma was in fact a blunting of this amazingly high response of cyclic AMP-induced gene expression in the healthy controls, which I find fascinating because it becomes, you know, for the longest time we think of the gene expression as being complex, but it's almost like the complexity has kind of reversed itself in a way and that better phenotyping and better understanding the environmental influences right before you do the sampling creates a new complexity that we have to now account for. It's what's interesting, for example, if you took the epithelial cell gene expression and the BAL gene expression and you correlating it to race, the top five genes were the same in both. And we don't often think, okay, I'm gonna get gene expression and I gotta account for differences in the races of the populations and the gene expression that racial differences um, cause. And you don't often think, well, what medicines did they use right before I took the gene expression? But it, 
to me was fascinating because it was like, oh, wow. It's like, as soon as you think you're starting to figure something out, all these other factors come into it and you're like, okay, well, we got to kind of start all over again and think about every single thing that this person's taking before you do your sampling, before you start making your conclusions. And when Nate was able to say, okay, well, I'm going to re-stimulate these cells and see what the gene expression does. And when that recreated the gene expression for me in these macrophages, I think that was like a big light turning on, like, okay, this is due to a, desens uh, a desensitization of cyclic AMP-induced signaling in the severe patients, and then uh, a strong induction of gene expression in these healthy controls. I got a beta agonist right before the sampling. I think that also really underscores the importance of, uh, you know, consideration of the research protocol, because um, when you're dealing with, with patients and, and trying to get a handle on uh, a disease process um, and you're putting them through some kind of research protocol, you know, there may be um, nuances within the study design that you don't even realize are nuances until well after the fact. And I think this is a good example of that. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's really, it's really impressive what you guys were able to find and how you were able to, to sort of take those findings and correlate it back to, to, to essentially a protocol uh, uh, or, or a process in the protocol that was driving the changes. And, and so moving forward, what do you think the implications of the study are and uh, where do you guys go from here? To me, um, I think one of the implications is kind of what we just talked about, that we, we really do need to have consideration for protocol. Um, and another implication is that um, do these changes that we're imparting on cells through aggressive therapy have any kind of longer term effect? And so um, the, the kind of question that is unaddressed by this study is are there are there functional consequences at the level of the macrophage to this desensitization by beta agonists and that's actually what i'm studying at kind of a basic translational level in my lab uh, here nowadays um, and and so if you modulate the the cyclic amp responses of of cells that are sometimes innate immune effector cells do they have any changes in their ability to fight off infection or um, et cetera, et cetera? Or if you are dampening the ability of these cells to be activated, do you have a beneficial anti-inflammatory response because they are immune cells? And if you, um, if you dampen their activation, is, is that actually kind of an augmented anti-inflammatory therapy um, through the use of beta agonists. And that's something that's been uh, kind of long discussed in the field, but not understood at the, at the root physiologic level um, so well. And we're hoping to start to get at those questions and maybe make some contributions um, with the insights that we got from, from this study. Brian? Yeah, I, I agree with uh, Nate completely on that. If you look at asthma, you know, all the GWAS studies that we've done, it explains about 3% of the inheritance of asthma, whereas we know 
clinically, inheritance of asthma is probably anywhere from 35 to 80, 90 percent. And so there's these environmental influences that I think are important, and we're just starting to scratch the surface of how the genes interact with the environment to create the severe asthma disease state. And if you looked at the figure six, we combined epithelial cell and BAL gene expression, and we clustered based on both. And we, we tend to classify asthma as type 2 high and type 2 low. But what's interesting is that uh, we show in that two main severe clusters, SC3 and SC5, which stand for subject cluster 3 and subject cluster 5. Subject cluster 3 has high type 2 gene expression, and subject cluster 5 has low gene expression of type 2 genes. But the, where they are common is they have low BAL camp gene expression. They have low gene expression of these epithelial growth and repair gene expression in the epithelial cells. Something's happening in severe asthma that is changing the airway, and it seems to be common regardless of if, whether you have type 2 inflammation or, or high or low. And so I look at it as one of the other things that we did is we correlated gene expression with severity, and we started to get these gene expression and gene targets that related to severity. I look at it as asthma as this extremely heterogeneous disease, and we're going to start piecing together maybe hundreds or thousands of different reasons of why people have asthma, and it's going to be one gene interaction with one environmental influence, and then over time, things start changing in the airway. And I think that's, that's to me, I think, getting into what I think is exciting about the field is we're finally getting somewhere with trying to nail down the molecular roots of asthma. Well, I just wanted to thank you both uh, for joining us on the podcast and, and congratulations again. It really is a nice, nice uh, body work. Thank you, Mayor. It was a pleasure. Nice yeah, talk. thank you very much. To read the article discussed in the podcast, please visit the podcast homepage at www. .atsjournals.org. To listen to more episodes of Out of the Blue, visit our page on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you download your podcasts. And if you like this episode, we'd love it if you let us know by leaving a review. Thanks for listening and have a great day. Thank you.